Welcome to the Badass CEO Podcast. This is Mimi McLean. I'm a mom of five, entrepreneur, Columbia Business School grad, CPA, and angel investor. And I'm here to share with you my passion for entrepreneurship. Throughout my career, I have met many incredible people who have started businesses, disrupted industries, persevered, and turned opportunity into success. Each episode, we will discuss what it takes to become and continue to be a badass CEO, directly from the entrepreneurs who have made it happen. If you're new in your career, dreaming about starting your own business, or already an entrepreneur, the Badass CEO Podcast is for you. I want to give you the drive and tools needed to succeed in following your dreams. Welcome back to the Badass CEO. This is your host, Mimi McLean. And today I have on Lauren Wang, and she launched the Flex Company in 2016 with the dream of transforming the lives of people with periods. After suffering from chronic yeast infections for 15 years related to tampon use, it dawned on Lauren that it was time to change the status quo, not just for herself, but for menstruators everywhere. She set out to create period products that were innovative, sustainable, and made for the 21st century. Lauren frequently speaks on women's health and entrepreneurship and has been featured in TechCrunch, The New Yorker, Wired, The Washington Post, and NPR. Lauren is a member of YPO and a graduate of Y Combinator. She gives back to her startup roots by mentoring entrepreneurs through both organizations and with the Norskin Foundation. Prior to founding the Flex Company, Laura spent over a decade marketing leading consumer brands for companies including Coca-Cola, Upwork, and IBM, and advocating for issues she's passionate about. She was the first in her family to graduate college, working full-time to earn her business degree from Georgia State University. Thank you for joining us today on The Badass CEO. Please go to thebadassceo.com to sign up for our newsletter so you'll be notified of our next podcast. And you can find out all my resources and tools that I use there that help support the podcast and all the expenses that go with it. Thanks again. Okay, Lauren, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And um, I'd love to start out because you were in corporate America for a long time, for a decade or so, and working for some great companies. At what point did you like, okay, I wake up and I'm not going to do a corporate job anymore. I'm going to become my own boss and start my own company. You're absolutely right. I mean, I got my GED at 18 and started working at IBM at 19, which is not a really traditional career path. I really didn't want to be an entrepreneur, but I was suffering from yeast infections for over 15 years and took me that amount of time to figure out that my tampons and pads were causing my yeast infections. And when I started talking to other people about my period problems, I heard all different types of period problems from different people. Most people weren't getting infections, but you know, everyone kind of dreads their period. And through those conversations, people started asking me to make better period products for them. And after getting texts from fourth degree out of state strangers, <laughs> I eventually got the courage to quit my corporate job and pursue making more sustainable, healthy period products full-time. So when you quit your job though, because I think this is a big decision for a lot of people, like at what point do you forego security for a high risk? You know, as we all know, a lot of ventures don't work out. The odds are stacked against you. Yeah. At what point did you mitigate 
that risk? Like, did you have a product when you left? Did you already know the name of your company? Like at what point did you say, okay, I'm, re- I'm ready to do this? I knew the name of the company. I had been kind of working on it as a side project for two years. The issue with making a medical device is you actually need quite a bit of money to build your own manufacturing line. You're not like white labeling a product. If I were doing a tech company, the risk is a lot lower. You don't need to purchase inventory. You don't have to buy really expensive manufacturing equipment (laughs) and go through the FDA process. It's a little bit different for everyone. For me, I thought that I had saved up enough money. I was desperately wrong and almost went bankrupt in myself um, before I got my first check from Y Combinator. But yeah, I think for me, it was really a calling. And as cheesy as it sounds, I felt like there were so many signs that were cropping up all over my life. And it was happening for a couple of years. And eventually I just felt like I was ignoring the universe and I needed to just do it. (laughs) I just needed to do it and try it and see. And you're absolutely right. I was plagued with anxiety because I knew over, what is it? Over 90% of startups fail. Yeah. I think like the first five years or something crazy. Yeah. It's, it's not, the statistics are really stacked against us, but I knew that doing it as a side hustle, it was never going to go anywhere either. Cause I didn't have my full focus on it. Mm -hmm. No, it's so true. Someone told me once that like, if you want to go like take a leap, it's almost like being in a trapeze artist. Like you have to let go to get to the other, you know, handle. Like you can't hold on to both and still go, like, be a trapeze artist. You got to like let go to be able to grab the other one. So at some point you have to let go, right? Totally. It's it's like becoming a parent. No one is ever ready to become a parent, right? And I have a little one and I have another little one on the way. And I felt so scared before she was born and I wasn't ready. And everyone said, you're never going to be ready until you do it. It's the same thing. The same thing. It's the same thing. That's great. That's great. So is there anything you've learned so far that you look back and you're like, okay, over the last, was it three or four? No, it's been 2016, right? So the last six years, you're like, gosh, I wish I knew this when I started. What has been the biggest surprise challenge for you? Learning to believe in myself, hands down, as cheesy as that might sound, I think the messages that corporate America gives to young women tend to be a little bit conflicting. While I did certainly have a number of people in my life who were very supportive to me throughout my career professionally, there were probably an equal number of people who were not so positive. And all of those kind of microaggressions over a span of 10 years can really get to you. I had to find confidence within myself. I had to believe in myself and I had to kind of get over the fact that I was from a small town in Georgia and I got my GED and that my family really struggled a lot financially and that I didn't go to this like Ivy League school and I was a Silicon Valley outsider. You know, I had to get over those things and celebrate the things that I was really good at and still be really honest with myself on all of my shortcomings and work on those, work on the things as appropriate. But that confidence thing, I think, is really critical for a lot of women that I talk to when starting a business. True. Because I think it's like that imposter syndrome where people feel like, wait, I don't belong here. I don't. And I think that's one of the things that a lot of women struggle with. They tend to undersell themselves. Yeah. And men tend to oversell themselves. (laughs) Right. I think it's interesting, like looking for financing, right? Because you said you self-financed it, almost got yourself to go bankrupt. So your first financing was through a competition. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I went through a program called Y Combinator. Um, It's not a competition, but it is a startup accelerator. I think they're the original startup accelerator in Silicon Valley. It's super competitive. It's really a sad statistic. They emailed me last week to see if I could help try to get some more women to apply. Last year, less than 10% of their 
teams that they funded had a female founder in it. And part of it is a numbers game. There just aren't enough women starting businesses right now. But for me, going through the application process was initially just to help create my business plan and be able to articulate to a venture investor why what I was doing was a huge multi-billion dollar market. But that did lead to that very first check. And before then, I cashed out my 401k, which I do not recommend to anyone. The woman on the phone when I was cashing it out was begging me not to do it. (laughs) It just compounds, right? So you lost all those years of compounding. I lost all those years of compounding. My tax bill was almost bigger than like what I actually got out. It it was bad. I was Airbnb my apartment and staying with a friend and my landlord found out and almost evicted me. It was like a series of really, really bad choices. But going back, I think I did need to show investors some kind of traction. And even though I couldn't buy my own manufacturing line, and even though I hadn't like developed my product at scale, I did have prototypes. I did have renderings. I did have some contractors that were working with me to like bring the business forward. And so I needed my own kind of personal savings to be able to do that. And I didn't have a lot of savings. Like I said, I was not wealthy. It did not come from background. No one in my family, none of my friends helped me. But you would be surprised that even being able to scrape together a little bit every single month adds up over the course of 10 years. But you're also probably amazed at like how much everything costs. Like people don't realize to do like the prototype of the box probably was like, what? <laughs> you know, like, yeah. It costs like so much money, you know. Everything always takes twice as long or three times as long and three times as much money. Exactly. So when you finally talk to investors, I mean, obviously most of them are men, they probably don't even understand. That's probably for them like, uh, like, wait, we're talking about what product, right? Because it's like, it, I, you know, I'll bring stuff up to my husband, like we're thinking about investing something. And if he doesn't understand it, it's very hard for him to like focus and be like, okay, come on, we're going to invest in it. Like, it's very, like men just have a hard time, especially if it's female products. Did you find that to be the case? Yeah, that was definitely the case. And I found a way to kind of overcome that because at the time, there's also very few CPG investors generally. So people weren't investing in personal care products or consumer products. There were like private equity funds, but that's a very, very different type of business and type of investor. But there weren't a lot of venture investors focused on CPG brands generally. What I found to your point is I had to find some kind of common ground with men in periods, which sounds like a stretch, but there was one feature of our product that I knew that men could relate to. And that was, you can use our product for mess-free period sex. And I'm a bisexual woman. So period sex for me was actually never an issue unless I was dating another woman and we both had our period on a different week. And that's kind of problematic for your sex life. But I knew for men that a lot of men had been rejected, heterosexual men had been rejected for sex because their partner was on their period. So I would kind of start my pitch that way and say, have do you enjoy having sex with women? Uh-huh. <laughs> Have you ever been rejected by a female partner because she was on her period? Uh-huh. All of them said yes. And then you have them nodding and then you're like, okay, I got a product that solves for that. And it's a multi-billion dollar market. And oh, by the way, there's been no innovation in, in period care in over a hundred years. Then you're on a roll. Then you got them like actually listening to you. But I would say to anyone that's pitching male investors, talking about the market size, talking about the business traction, talking about things that they understand and can relate to, even if it's a product that is so far outside of the realm of their comfort or experience, you can find that commonality and make it an effective pitch. It just took me getting a lot of no's to get to that point where I had to take accountability myself and be like, well, got to find a way to get them nodding. That's how I did it. I like that. I got to find a way to get them nodding. So you had this idea and it was definitely like new and novel. 
So how did you find an actual manufacturer? Like, did you have to find someone to do a prototype and then you found someone like, okay, this is what I want to do. How did that work? That was a multi-year process that would probably take your whole podcast to get into all the details. I cold called, I think over 53 manufacturers in North America. I really wanted a partner that was local for sustainability and safety reasons. I wanted to be able to go and actually like touch and feel and see the product and see it being made and see the facility and know that it was clean in the clean room and all those things. I resolved to actually starting to show up and stand in the lobby until somebody actually talked to me. And that eventually worked um, with the manufacturer in the Bay Area. They didn't know this at the time, but I hadn't raised money yet. So then I had to go and scramble back to investors and say, yes, I have a manufacturer and this is how much it's going to cost to make. (laughs) But first I had to get a manufacturer to give me a quote for how much it would cost to be able to go and raise money to say, okay, I have 10,000 pre-orders. This is how much it's going to cost to make it. This is how much money I'm going to make. But that contract fell through when I was in the middle of Y Combinator. So I ended up <laughs> I ended up having to go and buy another company, which is a whole other story, so that I could get their manufacturing line, basically, is what I did. You bought another consumer product company? I did, yeah, because I wanted their manufacturing contract because there are so few manufacturers that make medical devices in North America out of the types of materials with the manufacturing process that I needed. And I knew that this one was the best in the world, not just North America, but in the world. And that they had exclusivity with somebody else. So like my weird way around it was going and buying that other business. My gosh. And so your investors were okay with that to give you the money to go buy the business. Well, I took the little bit of money that I already had and I negotiated this really crazy deal where their company had been unprofitable for 20 years and I made it profitable in the first three months. And I used the profit from their business to pay for the acquisition of their business, which was kind of wonky, but because I was able to negotiate that deal, then all these investors were like, who is this girl from Georgia? Oh my gosh. This is so unconventional. Like here, here's a check. Like we don't know about this weird period thing that you're making, but we trust that you're going to be able to figure it out. That's an amazing story. And then were you afraid as you talked to the 53, you know, different manufacturers that they were going to steal your idea? Oh yeah. I, I was very scared about it, but you know, Ideas are a dime a dozen. So it all comes down to execution. Mm-hmm. No, it's true. So what makes your execution that much better than everybody else's that has worked? You super organized? Or are you like, well, you know, what's the magic sauce? I wish I could tell you the magic sauce. I mean, I think like the biggest thing that makes anyone successful is accountability. So if you take personal accountability and all the things and you find ways to just not make excuses, but to have a very sober view of, your reality and your set of circumstances and to be able to be able to focus on the positive and to problem solve around that reality, whatever the obstacles may be, that is, I think, what leads to success. For us, that reality is, I mean, that's how I operate as a leader. That's how I run the team in terms of us listening to customers, us, like our customer obsession and how we integrate data into every single thing that we do is our secret sauce and what's led to our success. And a lot of companies and businesses say that they're customer obsessed and customer centric, but there is a little bit of an art to listening to what people are saying. And I think motivating and incentivizing your team to not take critical feedback about the business or the product or you critically, but to learn from it and grow from it and take accountability and own it and kind of move forward 
from that obstacle. So I think it's a lesson that can be learned, like I said, for leadership or for businesses. No, it's true to always kind of just be learning. So you have this manufacturer, you bought a company, now you haven't manufactured and you're like, okay, where am I going to sell it? Did you try to then go direct to consumer? Did you try to find pharmacies? Like what was your strategy to get it out? Yeah. So this is the days that we launched right after Dollar Shave Club had sold their business to Unilever and direct to consumer was hot, hot, hot at the time. So we launched direct to consumer. That was like a very real viable business that there was still an advertising arbitrage on Facebook when Facebook used to be really hot. Instagram was very new. (laughs) TikTok wasn't even a thought in someone's head yet. Maybe it was, we didn't know about it. But yeah, direct-to-consumer was kind of the quick and easy way to go. And um, after growing and growing and growing, the business was just like exploding up and to the right. I kept hearing from customers, they wanted to buy the product in retail. A lot of people don't track their periods unless they are trying to not get pregnant or they're trying to get pregnant. And obviously like in that when that's a smaller target audience for us. So going back to what I said about listening to customer feedback, I said to the team, we got to start selling in retail. Like we just have to do it. We have to figure out a way to do it. And so we became omni-channel in 2018. It is now very hot to be omni-channel, but in 2018, was super controversial. Every like almost all of our investors, not every investor, but a lot of them were like, "Are you crazy? It's a totally different business. Retail is dead. Brick and mortar is going the way of the dodo." And I said, "Okay, maybe it is, but like, I gotta follow our customers." But that turned out to be just a really incredible business decision because we're now in over thirty thousand retail doors, and as cost of acquisition is rising in direct to consumer, we have like this massive, massive retail footprint and we're able to meet our customers where they already shop. Yep. And your your gross margin already included like going direct to a retailer. Yeah, it did. Yeah, it did. Okay. Cause sometimes people don't like they're like, oh, I'm going to go direct to consumer thinking like I, I don't have to worry about my, you know, my gross margin, my gross profit. And then when they decide to go, you know, try to sell it at Target. And you have a problem. Yeah, that's such a good point. So we solve for that because I uh and this isn't advice I would actually give to most women who are starting a business, especially when you're in the earlier days, get to profitability as quickly as possible. Again, at the time in 2018, profitability was like a cuss word. (laughs) But again, I think because I am pretty risk averse as a human and from like my humble upbringing with my, my family, I wanted to know that I had a viable business. I couldn't sleep at night feeling if we were overspending on things like marketing even if we were growing, growing, growing like crazy, I wanted to know that I would always be able to run the business securely and wouldn't be counting on an investor to come in and give me that next check. Because in our space, in the period care space, there just weren't a lot of investors. There weren't a, there wasn't a big universe of people that wanted to write me checks. I didn't know if I would be able to raise a series A or a series B or a series C. So I figured, all right, I want to grow at a healthy clip but I want to do so in a way that is sustainable and viable for the long term, so that if anything were to happen, look at COVID, look at that, you know, look at all these things that have happened over the years, then I can self-sustain and run the business. So to your point, um, we had phenomenal margins out of the gate, both in direct to consumer and in retail. And that took a lot of pushing and negotiating on the, on the part of retail to command the margins that I know that we deserve because the product works really well. But that is what has created a sustainable business. And to me, it's all in service of our customers so that the product can be more available at more places. And we have actually lowered the price. I think 
pretty much every year since we've launched. So as we're achieving economies of scale, we're making the product more and more and more affordable for consumers while preserving our profit margin. Did you have a um, viral video in 2016? Were you trying to follow, you know, the Shave Club's... uh remember that video that they first came out with? <laughs> I did. I wish we had a viral video. No, we did not have a viral. We have since had many viral videos, um, but no, we did not have a viral video. We did go viral for a weird reason. The editor-in-chief of TechCrunch was in an investor pitch and I didn't know he was in there. And he heard me talking about this being a new product for mess-free period sex. And he thought it was super interesting. And he published a feature on us on the homepage of TechCrunch for a full 48 hours. It's like the main cover story. And TechCrunch said that we broke the internet. And this is the beginning of 2016. But the saddest part is our website wasn't live yet. All that we had was an email sign up. Oh, no. So you imagine like the sales or if it was on Amazon now and that happened? Click here. Uh, it was heartbreaking. Every every mother would be getting that for Mother's Day. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I got a lot of I got a lot of heat from um, a lot of feminist podcasters that were like, "Oh, it's so heteronormative." I'm like, okay, I can see maybe how you would say that, but if you knew that I was bisexual and if you knew like why I had to pitch it this way to investors, you might understand a little bit better, but you got to do what you got to do to be able to. Everyone's got to relate if they're going to open up their checkbook, right? They have to relate. You had mentioned before that um, very few women are starting companies. Why do you think that is? I think it's a very nuanced, complicated thing. I think one is really around that confidence thing, like the feedback that we get for career-oriented women. I think the feedback that we get can sometimes be very contradictory. I think that's one thing. Another thing is I found a really hard time finding a co-founder. I was out around. I actually wasted a lot of time like talking to people, trying to find a co-founder. I had asked women that I had worked with for a number of years to be my co-founder. And what they would tell me is, well, actually my husband is kind of the breadwinner and I want to have kids and I don't really think I can have kids and run a company. And that seemed to be like this common thing that people would say to me over and over again. But I think part of it too is there were very few women at the time who um, were running companies who had children. And I think since there's been a new crop of a lot of different female entrepreneurs who have children and they're doing both. I think it's like the feedback that we kind of get in the workplace that makes us feel like we're not quite good enough and that glass ceiling um, coupled with not having a lot of role models to be able to to feel like if you want to have kids, not every female CEO or every female um, executive or female career woman like wants to have kids, and that's totally fine too. But for those who do, I think people should, more people should know that you can actually do both. Well, yeah, it's true because I always felt like I always kind of shunned away from corporate America. Like I worked in corporate America, but I always thought like, okay, I want to have kids. And I always thought it was more difficult to actually have a job and have to report into New York City every day and have a family and commute. And that's why I always wanted to be an entrepreneur so that I can make my own rules and where it's going to be. And kind of create my own lifestyle, right? Like I looked at it as the opposite. So smart. I think that's brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant. And yeah, I think that a lot of women who start businesses have the most progressive paid parental leave policies. For example, we let anyone, and we especially encourage the dads in the company to take advantage of a full three months, full paid, doesn't matter what state you're in. It's not just a California thing. We want people to be taking that time to start their families. 
um, because the government doesn't give it to us. And do you find though with that um, generous rule that's not mandated, you, it's your choice and does it hurt you? Or are you able to sustain like your expenses? Is it like bottom line at all? No, it, it, it doesn't hurt. I mean, it's expensive certainly, but so is our, we have like what our um, insurance broker would tell me is uh, like, way above market gold plated top tier health insurance coverage. But I, I view healthcare as being a human right. And I think it's more from like my personal values. If I made sure that I built the business in a way that was profitable enough that I'd be able to pay employees really well, have phenomenal healthcare, have phenomenal benefits so that people don't have to worry about their day-to-day living their lives. And that is more coming from like my personal values than like the business bottom line. Does it hurt the business bottom line? I'm sure it does, but I just think of it as a cost of doing business because it's the way that I want to run my company. Yeah. But I, I bet you if you do the actual, if you were able to, you probably can, but the turnover, your, your turnover is probably less than other companies because they value how you treat them. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. And and I think we're able to attract different talent or better talent because people know that if they decide to start a family while they're working at Flex, that that's something that we're very supportive of. Yeah. Okay. So last question. Is there anything that you would, any advice, tips to anyone who's starting a business, deciding to leave corporate America to start their business or any kind of advice for trying to help women get past that only 1.7% of women ever reach seven figured number? That statistic really breaks my heart. My advice would be just to, it's so low. It's so tough to read. Just get started. Like I said, there's really no perfect time. And There are a million books that you can read and podcasts you can listen to and YouTube videos you can watch, but nothing replaces actually going and getting started and trying to get that early traction to be able, if nothing else, to at least prove to yourself that like this thing that's been growing in your mind and on your heart and that you've been telling your friends and family about this idea that you have, no one can make that come true except for you. So I just encourage people always to go ahead and get started And that might not look like totally quitting your full-time job until you have enough savings. That's okay too. It took me a couple of years, but know that there is never going to be a perfect time and you are just going to have to make that leap one day, just like the trapeze example, or maybe just like having your first child example. Yes, exactly. Lauren, thank you so much. This has been amazing. And I just, I just want to make sure everyone has the um, website. It's uh, just flex or Instagram. It is flex, but your website is flexfits.com. That's correct. Great. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks. I had a blast. So nice talking with you. Thank you for joining us on the Badass CEO. To get your copy of the top 10 tips every entrepreneur should know, go to the badassceo.com forward slash tips. Also, please leave a review as it helps others find us. If you have any ideas or suggestions, I would love to hear them. So email me at mimi at the badassceo.com. See you next week and thank you for listening.